John chapter 17, uh, verses 20 through 26. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me, and didst love them, even as thou didst love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, and these have known that thou didst send me. And I have made thy name known to them, and will make it known, that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful and wonderful and encouraging and uh, strength-giving thing it is for us to be able to listen in on the prayer of your Son to you. For us, what a wonderful thing it is, like we talked about this morning, to not have sin laid to our charge. What a wonderful thing it is to have the living God, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, pray for us in such a way and to bestow such blessings upon his people. This is wonderful, Lord. Too great for words. We just thank you and we bow before you. Bless our time this morning. Bless your word to our hearts to our building up, to the building up of your church and the changing of our lives, that we might see you more truly as you are and praise you more truly as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. How many of you recognize this guy? Yeah. That's Wilson from the Tom Hanks movie Castaway. I know you can get in trouble mentioning movies in the pulpit, but anyway... Wilson is, without a doubt, the most famous volleyball in the world. In the movie, Wilson was Chuck Nolan's only companion throughout the four years that Nolan was stranded on a deserted island. I invited Wilson to join us for just a moment this morning to draw attention to something that's fundamental to being a human being. We who were created in the image of God, and that includes every person who's walked this earth, were created for relationship. Even if we're talking about the crummy imitation of life that most people experience because they are separated from God, existence without relationship, without companionship, conversation, communion with others is a dry existence filled with unfulfilled longing and despair. Why is that? Well, it's because we were created for relationship. And why is that? (laughs) It's because we were created in the image of God. And relationship is inherent to the character and nature and identity of the God whose image we bear. And by the way, if you throw out Trinitarianism, you throw out the very essence of God. 
That's what the last part of Jesus' prayer in John 17 is about. It's not just relationship, but it is perfect, everlasting relationship. I've been pondering this amazing prayer of Jesus, which happens to be the longest prayer in the New Testament, literally for decades. And in that pondering, my attention has very often been drawn heavily to these last seven verses of the prayer. I strongly believe that what Jesus is saying to His Father in verses 20 to 26 is the most identity-defining and life-defining reality that you and I will ever have set before us. When some of us met to talk about this passage earlier this week, one of my brothers said, if you ponder a truth like this and five minutes later you're not thinking about it anymore, you couldn't possibly be getting it. I would extend that. I would say if you ponder a truth like this and you're not thinking about it the next day and the day after that and for the rest of your life, you haven't gotten it. If my plan turns out to be God's plan, we're going to spend two Sundays in this passage. We're going to make two passes through these seven verses. Next Sunday, we'll focus on the implications of this prayer for the church today how it impacts our relationship with God, with each other, and with the world, and by the way, with ourselves. But it would be a grievous misstep if we jumped to the what must we do question before we addressed a far more foundational question, and that is, what has God done? And what is God doing? In verse 3 of this prayer, Jesus said to His Father, This is eternal life, that they may know You, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. The intimate, personal knowledge of God is life. Many things may come with that life, but that's the indispensable thing that makes it real life, is relationship with God. Now, at the end of the same prayer, Jesus pulls back the curtain and He gives us a look into the very essence of our relationship with the living God, which is our life and well-being. He sets before us a relationship that is so profound, so beautiful, so radically different from any relationship we have ever known that if we're paying attention, it leaves us stunned. It leaves us overwhelmed. It leaves us filled with awe and gratitude. And beloved, I pray that's how we walk out of here today. It is in these words of our Lord that we discover how personal God's gift to us is to Him. Ephesians 5 declares the marriage union between a man and a woman on earth to be an earthly picture of an infinitely greater union, the union of Christ with His church. If marriage is the picture of that eternal union, this passage unveils the reality to which that picture points. The union of earthly marriage is given to some believers, and it lasts only as long as both the man and the woman are alive on this earth. But the union of which Jesus speaks here belongs to every single believer, to the church corporately, and lasts 
forever. This, beloved, this is life indeed. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus prayed to his Father on behalf of his disciples. That prayer that we looked at last week focused on two, two requests. Father, keep them in your name just as I kept them in your name and sanctify them in your word, the word that I gave to them. Now, those aren't actually separate requests, as we talked about last time. They're fundamentally one. God has given us a two-faceted revelation of His name, His character. One facet of the perfect revelation of God to men is the in-person revelation in His Son, who took on our humanity and showed us God and came to restore the relationship with God that was destroyed by our sin. The other facet of God's perfect perfect revelation of Himself to men is the in-words revelation recorded by the prophets and apostles in the Bible, including the passage we're looking at now. It's through both of those facets of that glorious revelation, the incarnate Word and the written Word, that God has perfectly, perfectly revealed His name, His character, to all of those whom He has given to His Son. In verse 11, Jesus made this request of His Father for His disciples. He said, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given to me. And then there's a that clause. That they may be one even as we are. That they may be one even as we are. Here at the end of this prayer, Jesus extends that very same request to include all who will ever come to faith in Him by God's doing, beginning with the witness of these apostles. And for the rest of this marvelous prayer, Jesus sets his focus on the outcome, the result of his Father's faithful work to keep, to watch over and provide for and protect the Father's gift to the Son. And that's us. Us who belong to Him until the last day. The outcome for us is the same as the outcome for His eleven disciples. As I read verses 20 to 22... Listen for the that clause. It's stated and then it's repeated in a little bit different wording. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, or literally that they may be perfected into one, perfected into one. The outcome that Jesus is requesting of his Father here is Our intimate union 
with God. Not individually, but together with one another. That outcome, that outcome fulfills God's entire plan of redemption for mankind in the Bible. From the very beginning, the essence of God's plan of redemption has been all about Him creating a people for His own possession, making that people fit to dwell together with Him, and causing that people to dwell together with Him, together with one another, forever. The plan of redemption, the end point is us, God's people, together with Him, in His place forever. And we don't have time to do it, but I would love to walk with, with you through all of the many, many declarations of that divine plan and promise that are woven throughout the Old Testament. God's decree to create a people for Himself, to make that people fit for His presence, and to live together with that people forever in His own dwelling place pervades all four of the major covenants in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant. That decree shows up in the books of Moses, in the histories of the kings of Israel and Judah, in the major and minor prophets, and in the poetic books of the Old Testament. In other words, it shows up everywhere. And that very same divine plan and promise is the glorious endpoint in God's final revelation of things to come that He gave to this same apostle, John, at the end of his life in the book that we call Revelation. Here in verse 24, Jesus says to His Father with an earnestness that we can only imagine considering what He knew would happen the next day. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. The word desire in that verse speaks of longing matched up with resolve. Jesus wills to do that which He longs to do. And that that confidence that this will happen is reflected in John 14 when He said to the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now he declares to his father, Father, I, I will, I desire and resolve that all of those whom you have given to me will indeed be with me where I am and they will behold the glory that I have shared with you since before anything else existed. That's the same marvelous Endpoint, the same gracious and wonderful outcome that pervades the whole Bible. God's people in union together, in union with God in His dwelling place forever. And it is not two unions, it's one. 
Uh, we're very prone to think of this as two planes or two realms of relationship. In fact, it's, you guys know it's very common in Christian conversation and in Christian preaching to hear people speak of the vertical plane and the horizontal plane, the vertical relationship with God and the horizontal relationship with the people of God. As if our union with one another in Christ is somehow a separate matter from our union with God in Christ. But Jesus blurs that distinction right out of existence in this great prayer. I dare you to find the line in this prayer that in any way separates those two relationships as if they are different unions. Listen again to what Jesus says to His Father and see if you can find that line. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, even as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You sent Me. The glory which You have given to Me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected into one. See, Jesus blows away any thought that our union with one another is a separate matter in the mind of God from our union with Him. And I call that good riddance. This to me is dumbfounding and beautiful beyond beyond words. What is this union, this relationship into which God the Father has welcomed every man, woman, and child whom He has given to His Son? This is where it gets really wild. Because the union that Jesus is talking about here is the relationship that exists in the Trinity. Through our God-given union with Jesus Christ, we have been drawn into the eternal love and perfect fellowship and joyful communion that has existed within the Godhead from eternity past. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Now how could it ever be possible for the likes of us to be welcomed into that glorious relationship? The answer is through our identification with the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. See, we haven't been added to the Trinity. The Trinity hasn't been expanded from three to more. We have instead, we have been welcomed into the eternal relationship of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by being brought into union with Jesus Christ. He is eternally in the Father and the Father is in Him, just as He declares here. And now entirely by His doing, we are in Him, in Jesus, and He is in us. He is in the Father and the Father is in Him. We are in Him and He is in us. And by the way, this union is an arranged marriage. 
If you belong to Jesus or ever will belong to Jesus, that's because God determined to bring you into this glorious relationship before you existed and before anything other than God existed. You and I, beloved, have been brought into a relationship of perfect and eternal love. Listen carefully to Jesus' words in the last two verses of this incomparable prayer. O righteous Father, although the world has not known You, I have known You. And these have known that You sent Me. And I have made Your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which You loved Me may be in them and I in them. Jesus has made His Father personally known to us so that the love that the Father has for the Son may be in us. And what makes us lovable to God the Father? Jesus does. How and how much does God the Father love us? Love you if you belong to Him? In the very same way and to the very same extent that He loves Jesus. What's going on here is a lot more powerful than just God loving us like He loves Jesus. Look again at the so that clause at the end of verse 26. I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. See, God the Father doesn't merely love us like He loves Jesus. God the Father loves Jesus in us. It's a Godward love. It's a Godward love. In James 4, James very harshly rebukes some of his readers for their spiritual infidelity because they're bent on loving the things of the world even though they belong to God. After indicting them as evil adulteresses who are making themselves enemies of God, he says, or do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose when it says He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell within us? Why does it make God jealous when His redeemed people go after the things of this world? Is it because God is jealous for our affections the way a spurned lover is jealous? That's not what James says here. God is jealous for our holiness because His Holy Spirit in us is holy. It's a Godward jealousy. It is a Godward jealousy. When we as spirit bearers flirt with the things of this world that Jesus died to forever pull us away from, we are associating the holy with the common. We are associating the glorious with the fallen and cursed. God is jealous for His Spirit in us. See, the one and only thing that is indispensable to God is God. 
The one and only thing that is indispensable to God is the triune God with whom He has enjoyed perfect communion and fellowship and love from eternity past. God's love that He pours out upon us is a Godward love. It is our union with the triune God in Jesus Christ that makes us lovely to God and that causes God to jealously and fiercely protect that union. And praise God, we can't undo any of that because we didn't do any of it in the first place. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul says, no created thing, and he gives a pretty long list, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where the love of God is toward us. It is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, if you've been redeemed by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, there is only one way that anyone could ever separate you from His love for you, and that would be to take you out of Christ and to take Christ out of you. And Jesus promises over and over that's never going to happen. He said, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. He says, they're in my hand and I'm in my Father's hand and nobody is greater than Him, so nobody can take them out of my hand. He says, this is the will of my Father, of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I will lose nothing but raise it all up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Does that sound like God's going to take His gift back from His Son? It ain't going to happen. God's promise to every believer and to His church The promise of Christ in us and us in Christ is supposed to fill us with rock-solid certainty that we are perfectly and forever loved by God. If God has brought you to faith in Jesus Christ, you have been made the object of God's infinite, eternal love through the mystical, unassailable union that He created between you and Him together with all the others who belong to Him. If you've never had that confidence, beloved, let today be the first day that you lay claim to your birthright. There are far too many Christians wondering if God loves them. 1 John 4.16, John says, We have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. Now, if your response to all of this is that it's just too mysterious, it's too unsearchable to be of any real or practical value, then I have a very important prescription for you. Go home and camp out on this for a good long while until it blows you away. Meditate on it. Pray it back to God. Ask God to make this astonishing truth invade your thoughts until it utterly defines who you are and whose you are. One of the most influential books I've read outside of the Bible, a book I've mentioned up here several times, is Fred Sanders' book, The Deep Things of God. just went into second edition. 
Ron Maness handed me a copy of that book about eight years ago when I was working on preparation for a class on the Trinity, and I will always be in his debt for doing so. In the chapter titled, So Great Salvation, Sanders looks at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, in which the Apostle Paul seems to be bursting at the seams in an effort to set before us all the wealth that God has given to us in our union with Christ. Things like choosing, adoption, forgiveness of sins, the riches of God's grace lavished upon us, the mystery of the ages revealed, and finally, finally, the down payment of our eternal inheritance in the person of the indwelling Holy Spirit who seals and secures us until the day we stand in the very dwelling place of God, holy and blameless. Those 12 verses in which Paul sets all of those precious and magnificent gifts on a table before us consist of one sentence. I want to read you just a small portion of what Sanders says about that one glorious run-on sentence in the part of the chapter he calls the size of the gospel. He says, if the sentence is, as some commentators have said, a monster, I hope I have done nothing to domesticate that monster. The wildness of the blessing is is an important aspect of it. And the reader who does not feel some degree of vertigo from its outrageous breadth of thought is not reading it properly. On the basis of Ephesians 1, 3-14, nobody can accuse Paul of having a gospel that is too small. The excessiveness of Paul's sentence seeks to disorient our existing categories in order to reorient us by drawing us to the divine orientation. And then listen, he says, what we need, what we need is the miracle of being able to see our own situation from an infinitely higher point of view. We need to start our thinking from a center in God, not in us. Let me read those last two sentences again because they're important. What we need is the miracle of being able to see our own situation from an infinitely higher point of view. We need to start our thinking from a center in God, not in us. Who has to perform that miracle? The same one who has to perform all miracles. And that explains why the Apostle Paul immediately moves then in Ephesians 1 from setting that incomprehensible gift in front of us to praying this for us. Listen. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His powers? Power toward us who believe in Him. (laughs) Think about this for a minute. The riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. What is God's inheritance in the saints? 
It's the saints. It's us. See, when the Father gave all who would come to believe in Him to the Son as a gift, He gave that gift to the triune God forever. The Father's gift to the Son ends up being a gift to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But, but God doesn't need us. <laughs> and beloved, that makes this whole package all the more wonderful. God saved us because He is a God who delights in loving. He's a God who delights in extending the eternal blessings of the Godhead relationship to those whom He created in His image for the purpose of knowing Him. And He has done all of this for us in Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, Paul says, Therefore, if you if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Why? Because your identity is totally wrapped up in His. Your glory, the only glory you will ever know and all the glory that you will ever know is His glory. Your inheritance is His inheritance. We have been made heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Because we've been placed into Christ. I look at that passage in Colossians 1. I look at that, keep seeking the things above. Keep setting your mind on the things above. And I've often pondered, okay, what are the things above? Seems like they're kind of unknowable. I'm supposed to set my mind on them. 1 Corinthians 2 says God has revealed them to us. Those that we need to know. But Paul gives us a really big hint here about what he's talking about when he adds the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then when he talks about us dying and our life being hidden with Christ in God. See, what's going on right now in the heavenly places, the, the things that are going on above... What's going on above is the absolute perfection of relationship. Perfect love. Perfect fellowship. Perfect communion between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus was so eager to return to the whole 33 years that He spent on this cursed earth. Now we who have been drawn into Jesus Christ <laughs> have been welcomed into that Perfect relationship forever. We have died and now our real life is where? Our real life is hidden. It is bound up with Christ in God. In that great passage in Ephesians 1, Paul begins, he prefaces that long list of things we have been given in our union with Christ with this amazing promise. 
all-encompassing promise. He says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What does that mean? What are the blessings being experienced in the heavenly places where God lives? It's the blessings of perfect relationship, perfect love, perfect communion, perfect fellowship from eternity past to eternity future. God has brought us into that. I'll never think of Ephesians 1-3 again uh, the same way. Or Colossians 3. When I think of the things above now, this prayer invades my thoughts. It's a great infection. If your trust is in Jesus Christ, your relationship with Him has given all of that to you now and forever. And if you have not put your trust in Jesus, (laughs) may today be the day that you do. Take God at His Word and be saved forever. You will never encounter anyone more worthy of your trust and you will never know a love like the love of God for all whom He has given to His Son. There's one final exceedingly important truth that I believe Jesus intends for us to to hear in these final words to His Father before He went to the cross to buy us for Himself. And that marvelous truth is the evangelistic impact of the union that God has created between us and Jesus. As I read one more time, verses 20-23, to listen for the impact that our union with Him will have on this lost world. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that so that the world may believe that You sent Me. The glory which You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and You in Me, that they may be perfected into one so that, so that the world may know that You sent Me and that You loved them even as You loved Me. How will this world, this lost, godless world come to know and believe that the Father sent Jesus, that Jesus is the real deal? That will happen as the world sees His oneness in us and His love toward us. That means that God has a a very strategic evangelistic purpose in uniting us with Himself together with each other. We're going to consider the ramifications of that great truth next week along with several other ramifications. But for now, I just want to make sure that we're crystal clear about who it is that will make all of this happen. At the, at the very beginning of this last part of Jesus' prayer, He said to His Father, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, these eleven men, but for those also who believe in Me through their word. Now, there's a really big assumption in those words, isn't there? 
What evidence had Jesus seen in these 11 men that would cause him to pray for all of those people who were going to come to faith in him through the testimony of those 11 guys? You'll notice Jesus does not say, Father, I'm asking you to do all these things for all of those who will come to believe in me once you get serious about giving me some real disciples. I mean, come on, Father, have you, have you been listening to these guys? They say that they believe that I am the promised Christ, the Son of the living God, and then they worry about a storm on a lake, and they fret about how to feed a bunch of people on a mountainside. It seems that they're not really all that sure that they can trust me. Peter, oh, Peter, he can't imagine how I'd get along without him. Thomas has to have tangible empirical proof before he'll believe any promise that comes from my mouth. These guys are all still arguing even today with each other about which one of them is going to be greatest in my kingdom. As if I came from heaven to earth to fulfill their selfish ambitions. And they're all going to scatter like roaches this very night as soon as I'm arrested. But Father, that's okay. As soon as you get me some real disciples, we can get started spreading our kingdom. But of course, that's not anything like what Jesus says to His Father. His words come with the confident declaration that starting with the testimony of these 11 not-so-great disciples, God was going to ignite a fire that would spread to every tribe and tongue and nation on earth, bringing countless men and women and children out of the darkness and into the astonishing light of eternal relationship with the living God. And that's what God is going to do through us. Jesus' prayer to His Father on that momentous night was filled to overflowing with the unilateral, steadfast, redeeming covenant love of God, which is the only love capable of reaching into the the lonely, waterless pits that we have dug for ourselves to bring people like those 11 men and like us into blessed union with our holy God forever. That takes amazing love. Who must answer this prayer? Who alone brings men and women and children into perfect union with the triune God together with one another? Who shows the world through that union that Jesus is the Christ, the one and only Lord and Savior of mankind? Are we supposed to answer this prayer? Yeah, right. Not a chance. You and I can't answer this prayer in any way, and as we talk next week, that's going to be that's going to be critically important as we talk about the ramifications of this. But there are great responsibilities that come to us with this gift. Very great. Once again, God's answer to his beloved son's request is yes. Go think about that 
until it fills you with grateful awe. Holy Father, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see and live daily in the blessed reality of this unfathomable promise. Take our thoughts and our words and our actions captive. Pry us away from the cursed and common things of this dying world and lift up our eyes to see clearly whose we are now and forever in Jesus Christ. And Father, use our union with You together with one another to show this world that Jesus is indeed the One sent from heaven to earth as the only Lord and Savior of mankind. We ask this in His beautiful name. Amen.